Our scripture lesson this morning is from Philippians 2, beginning with verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this, your word, and I pray that you would speak through me this important uh, doctrine of the humanity of Christ. And Lord, I pray that you would uh, use these words to strengthen us in our faith. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we are continuing our series of foundational triads. And we have examined over the last couple of months here, uh, God the Father, mankind and sin, angels and demons, and now we are in our second week regarding God the Son. Last week we saw from Scripture that Jesus is the second person of the Godhead, or the Trinity. And we prove from numerous passages that he was not just a created being, not just a moral teacher, not just a good man, but was actually God. This week we are looking at the second nature of Christ, namely his human nature. Not only is Jesus 100% God, but he is also 100% man. He still continues to be that in his glorified state. And this is what theologians call the hypostatic union. Hypostasis is a word of Greek origin, hypo meaning underneath, and stasis meaning substance. And so, regarding metaphysical things, or those things which cannot be defined as physical, there is often a union that takes place. For instance, our souls are metaphysical. They cannot be examined by uh, scientific experiments. And yet, at present, your soul has a hypostatic union with your body. The physical body is what is observable on the surface. But underneath the surface, underneath the body, so to speak, is a soul that is unseen. And it will be important to keep this definition in mind when we speak about the humanity of Christ. Last week we briefly touched on the fact that Jesus has a divine attribute of eternal existence. And so we, before we dig into the humanity of Christ, I want to firmly establish this fact from Scripture about his eternal existence. Because there have been many heresies that have cropped up through the years that proclaim that Jesus came into existence upon his conception, or, at best, was created sometime in eternity past by the Father. They quote such passages as Psalm 2-7, which says, The Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And they'll say, See there? It says today he was begotten on a certain day. This is the fatal error of the Mormons. They do not believe that Jesus is God from eternity past. Rather, they believe that Jesus and Lucifer were brothers, Jesus being the elder because he was the firstborn of the Father. 
when God presented the plan of salvation to these two supposed brothers, the Mormons say that Lucifer stepped forward to carry forth that plan on the condition that God would grant him his glory. Whereas Jesus said he would carry forth the plan and give all the glory back to the Father. And so first we must address this question. Are Jesus and Lucifer spirit brothers born of the Father? Again, we must not look to our own reason when it comes to this issue, because it'll end up deceiving us. And so let us look at Jesus from eternity past. We look to the Bible, God's very word passed down from generation to generation. And we're going to work backwards today, first proving that he was in existence before his birth 2,000 years ago. John the Baptist, who was conceived before Jesus, said about him, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me, because he was before me. That's from John 1.15. And this is not clear enough proof in and of itself, because some might argue, well, maybe John was a premature baby. And so expanding on this idea of being before certain individuals, Jesus told the religious leaders, Before Abraham was, I am. This is from John 8.58. And so we see here that he's at least as old as Abraham, predating him. But scripture takes us back even further. Colossians 1.17 states, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And so Jesus, at the very least, uh, predates creation. But that still does not disprove the Mormons. We must go back to the interaction between the religious leaders and Jesus' statement about Abraham. When Jesus made this statement, they tried to stone him for blasphemy. And the reason was because of the phrase that he used. He didn't say, before Abraham was, I existed. Or before Abraham was, I was. He said, before Abraham was, I am. Now that's a very unusual phrase. And this kind of response uh, calls some attention to it. He said, I am, because he was connecting himself with the name that God revealed to Moses at the burning bush. In Exodus 3.14 it says, God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent you. And in fact, in the book of John, we see seven I am statements that are made by Jesus. And any time you see that number in Scripture, the number seven, it's a number of completeness. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. But at this point in eternity past, we don't yet see this hypostatic union. It's not until just after Gabriel's visit to a lowly peasant Israelite girl that we see this most miraculous event in human history. The eternal, all-powerful God, who holds all things together by his powerful word, becomes hidden underneath human flesh. 
A number of verses showing just exactly what happened would be helpful here because the biblical language is much more precise than my own description. In John 1.14 it says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Notice that there was a moment in time when the becoming happened, when the Word became flesh in that very moment. Galatians 4, 4-5 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive the adoption as sons. Notice here that Jesus was not only born of woman, which is humiliating enough for the King of the universe, but He was also born under the law. And this means that the untouchable judge could now potentially become one of the accused. Now the reason that this is given, this potentiality, is because we potentially could become the royal untouchables now. Because nobles who rule over a land are not subject to its laws. They are above the law. And so we had to become nobility in order to be saved from the law. Philippians 2.8 says, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Notice in this verse that the one doing the humbling is not an outside source, but it's Jesus humbling himself. We see this also in John 10, 18, where Jesus says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. And so we see that the incarnation here, Jesus becoming human, was part of God's plan to reconcile mankind to himself. But now we come to another question. The question of why. Why did this have to happen this way? I mean, couldn't God, being as powerful as he is, just wave his hand and forgive all of mankind of their sins? I guess the answer would be yes, if we look at it from a human perspective. For instance, could President Biden give a pardon to every criminal across the country? I mean, he has the power to do it, and so technically, yes, he could, but he's not going to. Why is that? Well, because the justice system would experience a complete meltdown. Presidential pardons have to be based on something tangible. For instance, perhaps the president sees that an individual has been reformed in prison and are now likely to be productive citizens. Or perhaps new evidence has come to light that shows the person was actually innocent. Or perhaps the system that they were convicted under was corrupt. But he is still acting with the best interest of justice in mind, or he should be. Now, if he were a corrupt or unrighteous president, there is the possibility that he would pardon somebody that should not be pardoned. However, it is impossible for God to pardon somebody that is guilty. If he were to do so, he would cease to be God. And in fact, the entire universe would become unraveled because the very basis of our life and existence depends on God's consistency and his eternal dependence, dependability. So how is it that God is able to pardon sinners while still remaining faithful to his character? 
He's able to do so based on the principle of substitutionary atonement. Someone else takes the deserved punishment for the infraction upon themselves. Now, it's clear that in atonement substitution, for this to occur, the substitute needs to be innocent of the crime. Let's put it at another way here. What if I owed $500,000 and a judge told me that he was going to throw me in prison unless I came up with the money? And so a friend steps forward and says, Hey, judge, I will make the payment for him. And so the judge says, Okay, show me the money. And then my friend responds, Actually, I don't have the money. In fact, I'm broke and don't have a job, and I actually owe someone half a million dollars myself as well. That friend is not able to make a substitutionary payment for you. Only a rich person with an excess of wealth would be able to do so. Similarly, in the spirit, you have a debt that you cannot pay, and everyone else that you know has that exact same debt. Therefore, another sinful being cannot make your payment. But some might say, well, Pastor Scott, what about the Old Testament sacrificial system? Didn't God command that a bunch of animals be sacrificed for sins of the people? Can't we just keep doing that? Why did Jesus have to come? The sacrificial system that was put in place back in the Old Testament was supposed to show us our need. It was to reveal to us that this kind of sacrifice would never suffice. It would never be long-lasting. We see this in Hebrews 10.4, which states, It is impossible for the blood of goats and bulls to take away sin. In the following verse, we see statements made by Jesus, Jesus here. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And so that body that was prepared for Jesus in his humility needed to be human, since it was humans that were being saved. The body had to be vulnerable, since he was going to be bruised and wounded for our transgressions. That body had to be susceptible to temptation, since Jesus had to be tempted in every way, yet succeed in resisting temptation in order that he might be perfect uh, in his ways as a sacrifice for us. Rich in righteousness, in wealthiness of his uh, own righteousness there, so that we might receive his righteousness for us. And that body had to be killed since it's only by the shedding of blood that we can be forgiven. Hebrews 9.22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And so, there had to be a specific kind of bloodshed. It had to be the perfect Lamb of God that was sacrificed for us, once and for all, so that those who place their trust in his saving work might be saved. We'll be talking about this death and resurrection more fully next week for Resurrection Sunday. But another question that comes to mind this morning is, wasn't it easy for Jesus in regard to his temptations and life here on earth, seeing that he was God? To answer this, we look at our scripture lesson today in Philippians 2, where it says, Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, 
being born in the likeness of men. The key phrase I want you to notice there is emptied himself. How is it that Jesus emptied himself and became human? What does emptying himself look like? Well, first it means that he did not make use of his divine privileges, even though they were fully accessible. For instance, we see in his arrest in the garden, Peter pulls out a sword and he tries to cut the ear, or he's actually trying to kill Malchus, but he cuts the ear off the high priest's servant. And Jesus rebukes him saying, don't you know that I can call 12 legions of angels to come and defend me? He did not make use of his divine authority as the king of angels in that moment. This is why theologians say that he was humbled according to his divine person, not according to his divine nature. His divine nature was always present. He did not cease to be God. But during his humility, his divine person, that of the Son of God, was humbled. Humility is defined in this instance as power under control. Jesus had ultimate power at his fingertips, but he set aside the use of that power that he might truly take on human flesh. His ultimate divine right as Lord of Lords was kept in the background so that he might accomplish a greater purpose that the salvation and the elevation of mankind might happen. To some degree, he was like a ruler who moved about incognito among his subjects. And now we're going to be looking, finally, at Jesus into eternity future. One of the most amazing things about the incarnation of Christ is that he now remains in human form and will do so for the rest of eternity. Albeit now he is fully glorified so that the divine nature is no longer hidden. We see this uh, in the fact that he carries around with him the scars of his crucifixion, as noted in the encounter with Thomas. He says, put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. He still had a wound there that was open. On two other occasions, he actually eats with the disciples, once bread and another time fish. He has forever joined himself with the human race, having become our brother, as is indicated in Hebrews 2.11. In conclusion today, so what's the significance of all of this for you? How should this knowledge affect your daily life? In closing, I want to give you three main responses. The first response is that we recognize that because Jesus is our sacrifice, we do not need to depend on our own works for salvation. This is a terrible error. In fact, this is probably the most common error that I see. In fact, I just dealt with somebody this last week. I asked them, if you were standing before God and he said, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? And essentially this person said, you know, my good works, I think, would get me into heaven. That's a gross error. We recognize that Jesus came not as a good example, not as a test. He came to die for the sins of mankind. The second response we have is that we realize that Jesus was tempted in every way. And so, as I'm tempted and I have my struggles, I know that he understands them. 
And because he lives in me, I can overcome those things in my life by the power of the Holy Spirit, which he has given me as a help. The third response is, I joyfully look forward to spending eternity with Jesus, because not only is he my Lord, but he's also my brother, inviting me to become now a part of the family of God. I would leave you with some questions put forth in a song by Mark Markle of the group down here. He said, How many kings step down from their thrones? How many lords have abandoned their homes? How many greats have become the least for me? How many gods have poured out their hearts to romance a world that's torn all apart? How many fathers gave up their sons for me? Only one did that for me. And Father God, we come before you today and we thank you for sending your Son to die for us, to become a human with his divine power hidden under the flesh. And we thank you for the sacrifice that he made on our behalf. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this sermon series from Elam. If you are encouraged today, would you consider supporting our online ministry through a financial contribution? Personal checks can be made out to Elam Lutheran Church and sent to 11504 26th Street, Northeast, Lake Stevens, Washington, 98258. Or you can give online at elamlutheran.net. Thank you and may God bless you the rest of your day.